0: but no no the point is right not gonna apologize for anything all we did was raise a question right there are some questions out on the table right now what about the ann arbor blues and jazz festival huh what question mark all right television question mark all right radio exclamation point okay the door of the mind question mark What are we talking about? Question mark, question mark, (laughs) exclamation point, question mark. All right? That's the bottom line. When you leave this radio show today to go into the Living Writers Program, okay, there will be a lot of questions on your mind. And that is the start of a beautiful thing. Ask questions, exclamation point. Thank you. Thank you. See, this is why it's nice to have other other people to fill in my punctuation for me. Uh, This has been Jazz on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. We're going to go over to the Living Writers Show right now with Ashley David. I'd like to thank you for tuning in today for our all-live jazz program entitled In Case You Missed It. Uh, please do stay tuned for the Living Writers Show, and then there's, like, sports and whatever and stuff like that. Oh, we've got to throw in some promos and PSAs, quick. All right. Uh, t- Promotion. Closets are for closed tonight at 6, and Wolf are tomorrow at 7. Eat, eat grain. Good for you. Yeah, that's our public service announcement. Kurt, you got any public service announcements? Existentialism is no time for a cold. Well, say it, say it in the mic so we can hear how sick you are. Existentialism is no time for a cold. Drink lots go. of orange juice, Ann Arbor. Eat plenty of red meat. Yeah, plenty Take of your red vitamins. meat. Get plenty of sunshine. Yeah, coffee and cigarettes, and that's about it. <laughs> all right. All right, thank you all for tuning in. This is WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. Thank you to uh, my guests and those of you who called in. I appreciate it immensely. Goodbye out there. This is the last show of the week, but I'll be back on next semester for a brand new jazz program. Adios.
1: Let those December winds bellow and blow.
2: I'm as warm. Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and you're tuned into the Living Writers Show. My guest today is Lan Samantha Chang, a fiction writer, teacher, and um, the soon-to-be head of director of the Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa. She starts in January, and her fiction has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, Ploughshares, and was included in the Best American Stories. Her novel, Inheritance, was the winner of the 2005 PEN Beyond Margins Prize, and Hunger, a novella and stories, was the winner of the Southern Review Fiction Prize, and was also a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award. Um, Currently, you're teaching at Harvard, and um, you'll finish that up this semester and then head on out to Iowa? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Where you studied for your MFA, I understand. Yep, many years ago. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you. So as is our usual, I'd love to just hop in and hear a little bit from um, some of your work. This is the story Peepa's um, dream. Peepa's story. Peepa's story. Peepa's story. So sorry, um, which was included in the 1994 Best American Short Story Collection, edited by or chosen by Tobias Wolff, I believe, who's also one of your teachers, too. Yeah. Well, lovely. If you just jump
1: in and then we'll talk. My mother worked in charms. She could brew a drink to brighten eyes or warm the womb. She knew of a douche that would likely bring a male child and a a potion to chase away unborn children. Except in emergencies, she gathered her own herbs and animal parts. I was not allowed to help. The visitors said she had learned her craft from a Miao tribeswoman. A group of Miao, strangers from the West, had stayed in our village for a few months shortly after my father's death. My mother had mixed potions to forget, wandering in the woods to learn where mushrooms grew. My earliest memories are of watching the smoke from her kettle, white smoke, blue, gray, and black smoke. When I was a child, she seemed all-powerful, and although time passed and I grew tall, she continued to loom over me until I thought I would disappear if I could not get away from her shadow. When I was nineteen, I decided to leave the village. For days I watched my mother stir a mixture over the stove kettle. Finally I gathered the courage to speak.
2: Thank you. Now, you grew up in Wisconsin, and your parents immigrated from China in the 1950s. Is
1: that right? That's right.
2: And um, so you've grown up very much in the Midwest as a Midwestern girl, and um, at the same time you have this identity of being ethnic Chinese, um, but not from China, and that... um, shows up in your fiction in interesting ways, This um, the character Pipa separating herself from her mother, um, there's this interesting separation and attraction that happens for your characters from um, their heritage, if you will, or their ethnic identity. Um, and I'm wondering if you would speak just a little bit about um, how you found that issue of ethnic identity um, either forced upon you or something that you've embraced as a writer of fiction?
1: You know, it's interesting. I'm aware of issues of ethnic identity and I consider myself an Asian American writer, but I never felt that it was something I considered consciously when I was beginning to write. When I was starting to write, I was in my mid-twenties, and what I was really looking for was that one true sentence, one true thing that I could then continue And what came to me as I was in this period of of looking for my voice was the strongest, sincerest feeling of care for the people that I was with when I grew up, so my family. And at the same time, because I'm a fiction writer and I didn't have any desire to write about the truth, I made up characters who felt true. As as imaginary people, if that makes any sense. So I certainly didn't consider issues of whether or not I was writing Chinese American or, uh, you know, overseas Chinese literature or any of the kinds of things that people talk about when they read my work.
2: Well, and that's it. That comes up in many of the interviews I've read, um, and in sort of the the notes at the back of the the Penguin volumes of your books. You know, this sort of issue of um, Chinese American or overseas Chinese, or and I and I wonder how do you, how you whether you feel that that's sort of voiced upon you as something to to contend with, and um, if you since you're looking for the one true sentence, if in fact you struggle at all with this notion of standing in for. A people or um representing in a way that you know I'm from the South, I write, but i I can take my accent out of the mix and people look at me and they just see unmarked category um, that's not something that you have as an option as a writer in the u s at this point when identity studies are
1: huge and and um, yeah, I guess I just feel um it's what I have it's what I was born, you know, my sort of share of the you know discourse it's it's the way people see me but when I think of myself I mean I have an entirely internal picture and when I think about my writing it's basically just about the writing and I grew up I guess as a writer with this little mantra pasted to my computer that sort of guided me through certain things which is all that matters is the work all that mattered Was the work, you know? If I was upset about other things, what mattered was the work. If I was um, distracted, what mattered was the work. And I suppose that that this imply it applies to some extent with the subject matter. I'm not really concerned about how people are reading the subject matter. I'm just interested in what I'm doing.
2: And those are not concerns that are very different for many writers have the same thing it's about the work like what what are we going to do um your themes though do come from family and um you were raised in a family of four girls mm-hmm. and um in a town where you were one of three or four Chinese american families in of a town that was quite a bit larger than that
1: yeah when i was a child, I think. We were one of three Chinese families in Appleton, Wisconsin. There was also a Korean family. Uh, that was about it, I think, for a while. We um, we all knew each other, and I grew up playing with the kids in these two families. And I guess I was very much aware of being culturally different from the people that I grew up with. And it was just something that I sort of accepted and even kind of liked that it made me feel special I felt in some ways that I understood things in a way that the people that I went to school with did not and it gave me a kind of invisible perspective they had no idea what I was thinking or how I was able to see them of course um, this is the true of a lot of writers no matter what their background is Uh, writers tend to be outsiders and they tend to be observers
2: Right. Um, a lot of folks talk about that sort of outsider edge that gives them yeah. the ability to
1: to access characters and access story. It, Gish Jen put it one way. She said that she feels like she's a mind reader. That's what she said. I have to be a mind reader. I don't know if I can read minds, but I understand what, the general idea of what she's saying. Yeah.
2: Now you have come to writing somewhat circuitously Um your folks expected you to grow up and be um, a professional in the sense of doctor lawyer um, accountant perhaps and uh, you then studied east asian studies um, as an undergraduate at yale and um, did a stint at the kennedy school of government and then said mom and dad i'm going to be a writer how did that come down
1: <laughs> well they were not thrilled i mean they, they're like any immigrant parents they wanted me to be comfortable and secure And they wanted me to be safe and to have status in the society. And of course, the easiest way to do that is to get a, a degree as a doctor or a lawyer. And, um, first they wanted me to be a doctor so I went to college saying I was going to be a dermatologist because I'd once had this rash and um, then I f- sort of went to freshman chem and realized I hated it. I mean, I, I, when I think about my early life, it seems to be this series of sort of trying to do something and then sort of acknowledging to myself at some point that I hated it.
2: Right. <laughs> and was writing something that was always there as something you oh, didn't yeah. hate? Always you a- wanted
1: to be a writer since I, before I could read. Um, I used to copy books before I even knew what the Letters I was copying really sounded like, um, or what the words were. I would copy the pictures and the little quotation marks, and I just wanted to make books. I mean, I sensed I think even then that within books lay some kind of escape from the situation I was in, which was now that I look back intolerable, although i didn 't understand it at the time. I just desperately wanted to get to a point where I could um perhaps articulate or understand my experience in such a way that other people would understand it too um so a need to communicate or share or i don't know I, I, i don't know if i think of it as sharing or even being understood this just this desire to be to be present it was as if i was invisible that the only way to make myself present was to articulate uh my thoughts and feelings that once they were down on paper they did exist if I didn't write them down it was as if they didn't exist and I was wiped out I don't really understand it but I've spoken to a lot of writers who have that feeling just that feeling of potential annihilation or also I've spoken to a lot of writers who feel utterly inarticulate and um, confused until they can actually articulate what they're saying or what they're thinking Um, yeah in my case I just really needed that writing and You know, my early adult life was sort of the experience of shedding everything else until all I had left was that writing. All that matters is the work. Right. Back to the sticker. Yeah, back to the sticker. um. I mean, I also had a sticker next to the door that said, Be Brave. Those were the two (laughs) things I had for years. And I don't know. Now it seems to me my life has changed enormously. And um, I'm curious to see how... Um, how my conception of my work or the place of my work in my life is going to change
2: well, and I wonder because, as the new director at Iowa and a professor in the English department there i mean that 's a very amazing job to have as a writer if you if you want to also be part of a community of teaching and um,
1: yeah, I come from a family of teachers, and I suppose it would happen to be the case that I would end up somehow in a in a program. Um, but for many years, I was kind of a free agent. Like, I refused to take a permanent job. I haven't had one. I I had a job as an editorial assistant when I left college that was open-ended. You know, I could have stayed there until I was 42. Although I think people would have thought it was odd, (laughs) but um, but really, ever since then, I've never been in a place that was permanently welcoming, if that makes sense. I always had like a one or two year gig, or in the case of the job I just left or am leaving now, the Brix Copeland Lectureship, a five year gig, which seemed like a tremendous amount of time, the longest I'd ever stayed anywhere, knowing you know that I would be there. Um, And so, I really thought that I should make writing the focus of my life. And then there came a point, it happened last year, my second book had come out, and I gave a reading, and they had me go second. I don't know if you you know, think about this very much, but when two writers are giving readings at the same event, they tend to put, this is generally the convention, to put the senior writer second. I had never been a senior writer, I'd never gone second, and suddenly I thought, oh, two books means you're senior what does that mean and it was a funny thing because at the same time i was becoming a mentor to some of my students at harvard and began to understand that finally at last i was really an adult and that what adults do is they participate in the world instead of standing back and critiquing the world or sneering at the world or you know uh i don't know what people do when they you know when they have problems accepting it you have to at some at some point accept that you're a person that you need to be part of things if you're going to continue being a person and find the best way in which you can participate. Not everybody does it in the same way. In this case, I just happened to apply for this job as director and happened to get an interview and then went and happened to get the job and did accept the job, so I know that I cannot say disingenuously that I do not know how I got this job. I mean, like, on some level, I want the job of being in a position where I can make a difference in the writing world, here in the United States um, and it's exciting I really however have not yet started my job so I cannot tell you what it's going to be like I'm sure it's going to be a huge learning curve
2: <laughs> I bet it's going to be a big one well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back you're tuned in to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor my name is Ashley David my guest today is fiction writer Lan Samantha Chang <laughs> Welcome back to The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Lan Samantha Chang. We're talking about growing up. In some <laughs> yeah. um, We're talking about her work as a writer and uh, teacher and soon-to-be work as the director of the the... Writer's Workshop at Iowa. Um, so, Making a Difference, you wrote your first book. It was published in 1988. And 98. 19, oh, 98. Sorry. I've gone a whole decade off. <laughs> sorry about that. So, 1998. And then your novel just came out in 2004. Um, very different projects. I read a review, uh, an interview where you said that when you were working on the title story, the novella for Hunger, um, that you were trying to teach yourself to write Long, And prior to that, you'd written short fiction. Then when you wrote your novel, obviously that's a whole long project and something that you have to commit yourself to. And I think fairly adult ways. So um, becoming the director at the Writers' Workshop in Iowa is not your first sort of foray into committing and making a difference. How did you see? How do you see the kind of work that's involved in putting together a novel versus a short story, compared to if you can draw a parallel between the hopscotching that you have said you've done from the different programs—like two years at Stanford, five years at Harvard—and the other um, residencies that you've had to this commitment now to move to Iowa and run that program?
1: Oh, um, geez, uh, the whole time I was moving. I think I moved. Six times in seven years to different states. When I was working on my novel, maybe it was five times if you don't count Wyoming. Why um,
2: wouldn't you count Wyoming? <laughs> well, I was only in Wyoming
1: for a month, but I had no other address. So, and I was getting all my bills in Wyoming, but it was only a month.
2: A month of so. <laughs> they had a hard time finding you there then. I mean, I
1: had this big project to sustain me the whole time I was doing that, and everything I did was in service of the project. And interestingly enough, now I feel like I've taken on a project that is sort of in one place. Um, directing the workshop. Iowa City is this fascinating town. It's really pretty far away from a lot of other things and places. And the writers who go there form a very intense um, and passionate, strange community. It's one of these towns where the football team is important and then writers are important. Well, I don't know if there are any other towns in the United States that are quite so much like that because there are maybe fifty thousand people. I think the school itself is smaller than the University of Michigan. So
2: it is a bit smaller. Yeah, not quite the size of the town that we have here.
1: Right, it? right. It doesn't feel like it at all. This feels far more bustling and metropolitan than Iowa City does. And the thing is that what happens is you take these people with extraordinarily fertile imaginations at a young and passionate point in their lives, and you know they're extremely excited and and hardworking and um, you know you put them into one place a lot of them and they form this fascinating community and it's a wonderful place to be and I look forward to it enormously I don't think that it will I think it will be different from where I am now I'm in Cambridge, Mass and I'm basically a tiny fish in a big pond and Um, you know, everybody's writing a book. In Cambridge, if you run into someone, you basically say to them, how's your book going? (laughs) It's Um, like New
2: York and San Francisco. Yeah,
1: (laughs) And and it's true, too, in Iowa City, but people know better a lot of times than to ask. (laughs) Everybody's got a project um, they don't always want to talk about. But uh, I just, I think it'll be, um, I'm really, in a strange way, looking very much forward to um, being in a, in a place where I can actually contribute to that place that mattered to me so much So you, you came up through the writer's program and, and Frank Conroy
2: who you're succeeding was your mentor there so you're sort of stepping into his place and, and becoming in some senses for your students what
1: he was to you well it's interesting i have real trouble with the word mentor i uh, feel like people no just to say i feel like people use it really loosely when i think of mentor i feel like somebody who's like there for you every step of the way and guides you et cetera. Et cetera. i never had a teacher like that um exactly like that do you see yourself as a teacher like that Probably more than the teachers that I had. I think that the closest I've had to a mentor is the writer Margot Livesey, who was on the Iowa faculty as a visitor when I was most of the time when I was there. Um, I, but I never sort of, uh, I never sort of had that situation where you're sort of hanging out with your mentor, et cetera, et cetera, (laughs) et cetera, receiving advice at their knee. And I don't think that that's a model that is always productive to yearn for. I think that sometimes people go to MFA programs expecting to be sort of noticed from above, like that some giant hand is going to reach down and sort of take them up and sort of make them, I don't know, a writer, whatever that is. But actually, I think that the process of being a writer, becoming a writer is individual and that it's far more important in ways to look at the writers around you and notice them than to have them notice you. Because what you see in them is what you learn to be. And what you decide, what you repudiate in them is what you will not be. So on some level, what they're trying to put into you is almost irrelevant. I mean, it's very strange. I think we all have to learn to become our own sort of fiefdom inside and to sort of and do what feeds us, you know, be be what we need to be and not what others are telling us. Um, I, I'm not to speak against the wonderful teaching that has gone on there and continues to go on. But I think that there's ways of being a writer that don't include having sort of a person of influence kind of helping you. Right. I remember I, w- I met last summer a guy who went to an MFA program that shall be unnamed because what he said about it was, it was a big program in a big city, and he said, what I learned there was I didn't have anyone to rely on except for myself. And actually, it's not a bad lesson because when you sit down to do the work, there isn't really anybody that you can rely on except yourself. You can have sort of an imaginary gallery of helpful people um, in your mind, but really it's basically you. It's a really interesting um Way to think about it because
2: it's true. It's that people talk about it being a lonely life, the writer's life, but but it is sort of you and the the the, the paper or the or the um, the typewriter or the computer now. And I I'm struck actually by the ways in which that image shows up in your in your stories as well this notion it's it shows up in multiple ways i mean not it's process and um and then theme and all kinds of stuff and I, i'm thinking particularly of the story the unforgetting from hunger and um you say toward the end of the story then the soldier raised his arm again and the sharp blades sliced all our lives in two and you go on to say um which strikes me oh wait no that's what i say because i didn't write the the rest well, of the from, quote that's from
1: peepa's story oh um. From Pupa's Yeah, story. from the very end of a oh, story. story. Okay,
2: sorry about that. Yes, from the story that you read, yeah. you read. you uh-huh. read from the beginning now, and that notion of the 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 blades separating um, all our lives in two shows up. Not only in, as I said, in process, like you, 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 it's you at the desk and separate from the rest of the world, separate from your teachers, um, but also the course of the of many of your characters' lives. Um, there are many sort True. Of separations that they make, and I wonder if you would talk a little bit more about those crucial moments of separating, either in your own life or in the choices you've made with for your stories.
1: In the sharp blade sliced all our lives in two. I think that what I was referring to was the fact that after this particular character dies of a beheading, nobody's life will be the same because he was such a strong influence on them. And But more than that, I think the way that that image reverberates back through the book is that these are characters whose lives have been s- sort of cut in two by their um, movement from China to the United States. And so they had the before life when they were in China and the afterlife here in the U.S. And it's interesting I think patterns of immigration are changing now so that 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 sharp blade isn't quite as sharp um that maybe there isn't a sort of utter separation the way there used to be but when I was growing up during Mao's era you couldn't get into China from the US mainland China so there was this absolute sort of bamboo curtain between uh mainland China and people who'd left and I think that that kind of absolute sort of departure um, was really powerful to me. It's not just me though. Um, I was reading an introduction that Philip Roth wrote to his later, to his book, first book, Goodbye Columbus, and he said at the time he was completely preoccupied with the idea of leaving. It's the departure that we all go through when we leave our homes and go into the world. And it happens um, to so many people now because our, our society is so mobile. It's part of the American story is to sort of grow up and leave. It's part of the Western psychology, that separation between the child and the parent that must take place, separation and individuation. I think in the case of these particular immigrants that I'm writing about, that separation and individuation is more marked because of the difference between Asian and Western family patterns. In Asia, it's expected that the child not separate, or at least it didn't used to be, traditional Asia. In the West, the child separates, so that that separation of a Chinese-American child, son or daughter, from the parent is even more marked and more painful in some cases. And I think that's really what hunger's about. It's about that kind of longing that we have even as we are becoming um, separate from the past um, and from those who gave birth to us and raised us uh, and how that's exacerbated in a situation with Chinese-American families. Um, there's also, I think, this enormous separation in my work, which is becoming more clear to me between the artist and the family. Mm-hmm. Um, the artist who is sort of um, growing up in a place and then... Are, in a place or with people, and then learns that in order to pursue the art, must to some extent separate him or herself from that place and those people. Do you
2: think that's true with all artists? Um, that that's oh, sort of the condition so of, of artists in
1: the, in the U.S. I think it is to a large extent. Although there are people, there's some writers who write about where they're from or who write about one place and live in that place, um, but not as many as you'd think. I mean, not as many and uh I was talking to Marilyn Robinson the other day about what do you consider home I asked her she said she's not sure because she grew up and was raised in Idaho and that on some level will always be home to her and you can tell that from the way she wrote so beautifully about it in her first book Housekeeping now her second novel after 20 some years is out Gilead and it's set in Iowa which is the next place where she's made her home and interestingly uh... She says she supposes maybe I was her home, but it's not quite. There's a kind of feeling of loss, I think, that, although she didn't say it, that that artists and writers are always aware of. Um, I was at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and there was a very interesting visual artist there. And I remember what she was working with was photographic negatives and Polaroids, Um but also just these half developed photographs in which you could sort of see things coming and going, like becoming formed and then vanishing. Um, this is a preoccupation, I think, of, of ours. And, and that's because we're born and we die. I mean, it's the same thing. We, we come into being, we become ourselves, and then we sort of slowly or quickly stop being ourselves. I, um, i as a teacher of undergraduates at the moment, I'm sort of fascinated by the way that the students at Harvard who have so many privileges for so many years are then sort of born at graduation into the world like fetuses. I mean so many of them have uh you know instantly places to go they go to law school they go to a consulting job that's the big thing now consulting job thing yes um because they're desperately longing for that sort of uh exoskeleton or, or what is it, you know, like a carapace or something that they can then sort of be sort of surrounded by the same way that Harvard surrounded them. But the fact is they're kind of born naked into the world and then you sort of make your own path into the world and then you be- become more aware of who you are and what your limitations are and what you really want. And then slowly it all, you all gain it and, and slowly it moves away from you.
2: Right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, with, with writers, you are not necessarily playing with that illusion. You're realizing it's an illusion and cultivating, if you will. Absolutely. That, that Absolutely. Vulnerability and
1: um, the, the the knowledge that there is no hard exoskeleton <laughs> protecting you from... <laughs> right. And that we're all sort of here in time, but that we're always changing and we're sort of coming and going.
2: Yeah. Perhaps that's what gives you the inside, the the mind reader capacity, that lack of fortress between you and the rest of it
1: maybe I don't don't know <laughs> yeah I really have no idea
2: <laughs> huh. well and you've cultivated this sort of moving about where would you call home now um, you've been on the move since you went away to college
1: yeah I guess 18 years in Appleton four years in New Haven two years in New York and then I went to Cambridge Mass which is one of my homes in fact I own a own a condominium there with my husband which um, we're not going to sell it. You know, we're sort of hanging on. You're holding it. on to the yeah, East Coast. <laughs> yeah, because my parents lived on the East Coast when they met, and then they moved to Appleton, and they could never move back because they didn't, you know, prices went up. And so we're moving to Iowa City. We'll probably buy a house in Iowa City. And I have a feeling Iowa City is going to be my home for a long time. I mean, I've lived there three times now. I've been there... Once as a grad student and then twice to teach in the graduate program. And so I'm pretty familiar with it in some ways, although I haven't been there permanently. I think being permanent in a place is going to be, or quote unquote permanent, what I mean is there for the foreseeable future, Mm -hmm. will be a very different experience for me. I really have no idea what that's going to feel like.
2: Well, we're going to take another short break. It's the top of the hour, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Lan Samantha Chang. We're talking about her books Hunger and Inheritance and writing and the writing life, and we'll be back. tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN, we were just talking about the random music that we put on here, and occasionally we, we, we have um, guests who will choose things, and that sort of adds to the vibe of the show, and then um, we're working on maybe getting some made that's just for the show, but today we have a little hodgepodge. We started out with Greg Brown, who was singing a song about canned goods. He's from Iowa, and I thought, since you're moving to Iowa, we do that. That's nice. <laughs> and uh, then we had a little Beethoven, and now uh, Marissa Monchi <laughs> we'll just move
1: around the globe. I guess oh. I would have chosen Joni Mitchell, but I didn't think ah. about it. that song from her album Blue. Oh which I yeah. Think is really oh well,
2: I had really I had painful. Joni Mitchell in my hand this morning. Really, I did. I must have been channeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but that I, sort of
1: raw individual female voice.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Wonderful. Well, I wonder if we could hear a little bit more from um, one of your stories. Sure. This is from the Unforgetting, which is a story about a family that moves to Iowa. A Chinese family. On a sum- on the summer day in 1967, when Ming Huang first saw the eastern Iowa hills, he pulled his car off the road and stopped the engine. He felt overwhelmed, as if he had arrived once more at the sea that he had crossed to reach America, and his destiny lay again upon some faraway shore. The neat green fields rolled out to meet the sky. The narrow strip of highway looked barely navigable. Surely no Chinese man could ever have laid eyes upon this place before. Beside him, San San stirred and squinted into the hazy light. This is beautiful, she said. Why did you stop? For a minute, Ming could not reply. He wanted to say, this place has nothing to do with us. Instead, he pointed out the windshield. Do you see that water over there? That's Mercy Lake. The town is only a mile away, he added. Maybe it will bring us luck. When she didn't answer, he turned to examine her smooth brown face and knew that she was also afraid. He looked over his shoulder to make sure that Charles was still asleep and would not hear the conversation. Is something wrong, he asked. We're getting old, she said. How will we make the space in our minds for everything we'll need to learn here? Without a pause, he answered her. We will forget. San's dark eyes flickered, then she nodded. Ming glanced back again at his son. He turned the key in the ignition and fixed his gaze upon the road. Thank you.
2: So that's at the beginning of their move into Iowa, and toward the very end of the story, um, Ming says, what had happened to them, referring to the family, to he and San, San. what would happen? He had no one to ask, no friends, no parents, no one who could have understood the language of his thoughts. Um, And then a little bit further on, nothing remained of the stories and meals and people they'd known, nothing but what they remembered. Their world lived in them, and they would be the end of it. I sometimes think that it's the people we surround ourselves with who help us remember who we are and um, help us sort of place ourselves. It's that community in which we locate ourselves. And I wonder how you think about such things. As someone who has moved a lot in her life and whose parents moved a great distance um, to settle in um, Wisconsin, and then as someone who writes about those transitions, um how do you locate yourself or locate your characters um, given the, the transient nature of the surroundings they find themselves in and you find yourself in?
1: It's true I've moved around an awful lot, but I've always felt that I've had this core, like a just a knowledge of myself that I think came from being one of many children where I would retreat into myself a lot because we didn't have very much space in our house and I would um, kind of watch what was going on but basically be inside myself Mm -hmm. and so I'm pretty well acquainted with that feeling and just that sense that I'm present and don't really don't really believe what a lot of the people around around me say I guess it's it's it came from growing up in a town where Culturally, I was so different from my classmates that I didn't think I had a single friend um, who I could actually make myself understood to until I was in college. And so I always had to believe that my perceptions were mine and valid because otherwise I would have been nowhere, you know, and uh, or nothing. So always had a pretty strong sense of self, What? What I've done over the years is made some friends that I basically talk to on the phone. So no matter where I'm living, I can reach them on the phone. Time zones are a problem, but right. <laughs> yeah. But basically I have these phone friends and then I just sort of move and do what I need to do wherever I am. I think that'll change when I move back to Iowa City because I'll be living there and people can't help but sort of make connections and sort of meet people and become sort of known to people when you live in a town for that long although i sense that the town has a great sort of capacity um i mean that that in the town there might be a way to be quite anonymous i mean i think about the writer marilyn robinson she just won the pulitzer prize she's kind of a big deal right now in american literature she kind of walks through town she doesn't have a car she (laughs) you know she uh She's always walking somewhere. Nobody stops her or bugs her. People are just, you know, leave her alone, pretty much.
2: There's a kind of respect that happens in small towns. There's I think so. There's very little anonymity, at, and at the same time, there still is some privacy. Yeah. Um, which strikes me as a really interesting place in a place like Iowa City, which is a small town, but um, both because of its writers and its football teams, as yes. you mentioned earlier, um, there's some stars in town. Yeah, people pretty much leave people alone. Yeah, are you and your sisters and family show up very often in your stories and in your novel? Are you and your
1: sisters and your family still close? Yeah, we're close. We're a close family. We have this kind of hot blood from my dad, where we're all just really, we're not just emotional, but we're attached. We're attached to each other. You know, we're um, we're just very attached. Uh, he he, is, he always you know when we would fight with each other, he would always yell. How many sisters do you have? You know, and I'd be like, well, I have three, and right now I want to kill one of them. <laughs> <laughs> would you yell that part under your brother? Oh, I, I would never <laughs> dare speak back to him. He was he was very, um, I don't know, not the kind of dad that you would, like, talk back to very often. At least I didn't. Um, yeah, we're really close. My parents still live in Appleton. One of my sisters is in Chicago. Um, and I've been all over the place, but now I'm going to be in, Bo- in in Iowa City, which is actually closer than I've lived to home for a long time. It's like five and a half hours by car. So on it's on a just good day,
2: easy on a weekend. Then kind of, kind of yeah. better. Yeah,
1: uh, and, same time uh, zone? No, different,
2: different. No, time same, time, same time, zone. time zone. Same
1: time zone. It's an hour behind Michigan. Okay. Yeah, we're right on the edge. Right, right. It's on the other side. Um, so I think it'll be interesting. My other sisters live in Philadelphia, New York, so they're still far flung. My parents never encouraged us to stay home. They, they're they kind of like the parents in The Unforgetting. In The Unforgetting, there's a couple, Ming and Sansan, San, who raise a child, Charles, who i mean they don't they don't teach him to remember very much about his heritage and so when it's time for him to go to college he does what every american kid does or no not every one but what a lot of american kids do and he decides to leave home and go far away to the east coast my parents were like they were close to us and they wanted us to be near them but interestingly they basically told us from a very early age that we should get out really <laughs> yeah get out of wisconsin <laughs> Um no really What was the, that about? Because that well,
2: that that um sort of goes in it's in contradistinction to some stereotypes about the family wanting to stay close and Right. um in, right. in some of your stories there are some of those notions.
1: Well, we have this closeness as I said. I mean, if any of us had a problem, the others would be right there to help her and there's this kind of heated sort of connection that we share and um uh, you know it's just we understand that we're there for each other because we grew up together in this tiny town where it was basically us and them and uh I, at the same time, my parents always encouraged us to 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 make something of ourselves, and they thought that what that meant was leaving and going to the East Coast and going to an ivy League school I mean all four of us went to Ivy League schools and you know just sort of like. Throwing ourselves like, up against the world. Mm-hmm. They came from big towns, I mean, big cities. My father was born in Beijing and my mom in Shanghai. Oh, heavens, so.
2: they must have felt a little lost in
1: Appleton. Yeah, they felt. They, I think it took them years to get used to living in Appleton. And they're okay with it now, which is good because they're older and it's easier to be there than it would be to be in a big city. But, um, you know, we, we've all just sort of done whatever, wherever, and have never been told where to go. Right. And so we're all doing very different things now.
2: Now, in the, um, the unforgettable, I'm sorry, in the forgetting, no, the unforgetting, I had it right the first time, um, the, the parents sort of leave behind a lot of memories and they sort of say, we can't remember that, we have to keep going forward. And there's this sort of forward thinking in your own life and in your own family. Um, and I'm wondering, in writing stories, And in studying East Asian studies in college, um, to what extent do you juggle that looking back and finding memory and and making new story or making new contemporary myth um, out of um, a past that is alternately left behind and and held on to in not necessarily consistent sorts of ways? Can you repeat? Yeah, sure. Um, To write story, you look to experience that isn't necessarily your own and is experience that's past. Um, Your novel, for example, is set in the twenties and thirties. Thirties and forties. Thirties and forties. So you're going back for history and East Asian studies. um, There's there's history involved in in um, in that discipline, um, which is a recovery sort of exercise could be anyway yes and and so i'm wondering in going forward and in writing stories that are contemporary to what extent do you juggle this need for recovery or this need for i read in one interview where you said i'm not going back to china i never i were not from china like like there is no going back there's a going to um but how do you
1: juggle those well i think in a way that that's what um what I'm struggling to understand in my fiction I mean it's one of the things I mean I don't know exactly how and that's why I write about it I have been thinking a lot about late lately about not recovery but almost the opposite of recovery which might be like forgetting but how to let go of things and how it becomes necessary I assume as one moves into a certain part of life to start letting go of old ideas of who you are um, you know, old, old ways of being, even memories that you can't have. Or I think about the way that people reconstruct the memory of a love affair, for example, there'll be a time in a love affair if it's one of any heat, where the two people are so attached to each other that they either say things or feel things that are pretty absolute. And yet at a certain point, Um, It all goes away and they find themselves reconstructing it completely differently. Lately I've been thinking about this. Um, I think it all has to do with trying to sort through or understand patterns of, of consciousness.